Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by fellow podcaster Ollie Mann. Hello, Ollie. Hello, fellow podcaster. I like that. Like there'd be a BAFTA fellowship for podcasting. It's only a matter of time. One day, I mean, hey, one day they're doing video games now. I feel like it's maybe overdue. Exactly. Come on, Bafta. Oh, my God. It can, yeah. When they finally get around to giving knighthoods for podcasting, I'd like to think I'm in the first 100. Let's let's put it that way. It's really nice to to hear your voice through my headphones right now, because I feel like I've been listening to your voice through my headphones for about 10 years or so. I've uh, been a fan of, of so many of your shows, you know, from Answer Me This, uh, Modern Man Followed, and then and then The Weekend Wrapped, and then Today in History with the Retrospectors. Wow, that's the full CV right there. As someone who makes a podcast which, you know, hopefully comes out twice a month, um, I'm in awe of your, your, your current output. You have a daily podcast, a weekly podcast, and a monthly podcast, and I'm sure lots of other bits in between. It's a full-time job, though. So, you know, you've got a job, haven't you? This is your side hustle. That You know, being a podcaster is my job. Uh, and I guess uh, me and, and Helen Zaltzman, who I know has been on your show before as well, when we started Answer Me This in 2007, I guess we were amongst the first... People who weren't being bankrolled by someone, you know, doesn't have to be big Mr. Moneybags, but just anyone, you know, any company, we were just doing it ourselves. We were the first people to at some point in that journey get to a level of popularity where we thought, hmm, this is actually a job. It's not a very well paid job, but it's a full time job and it is paying the bills. Let's do this. Um, And I guess that happened in around, I can't even remember now, probably 2011 or so, I became a full time professional podcaster. So yeah, it's kind of necessary, really, for me to keep cranking out the uh, cranking out the episodes, especially these days, because I mean, going to get a bit bit technical here, folks. Bit inside baseball, but uh, on a daily show, what you're doing obviously is you're serving up a daily ad. So that's where the money comes from on a show like that. It's only ten minutes long today in history with the retrospectors. So we need people to every day download the show so they can hear the ad every day. <laughs> <laughs> I think the um, the planning that must go into a, to releasing a daily show uh, today in history with retrospectors. Uh, I mean, I'm just sort of in awe of that as well. There's a very impressive spreadsheet. It's it's it, it's called the Mothership, um, and it exists on Google Sheets, and it's shared between myself and my co-presenters Rebecca Messina and Aaron McNichol. And there's numerous tabs. So there's a tab for dates from history, obviously, because that's where it's. So we so we should, I should explain. It's an on this day in history format. So when you download the show on the 27th of January, that is about the 27th of January 1924 when Lenin was first embalmed, for example, right? 10 minutes about that, of edutainment about that. Uh, and for us to choose those dates, there's just this huge, massive fuck-off spreadsheet, basically, <laughs> where we've compiled. It, it's weird because like, there's a lot of history content out there. History is like this real growth area in podcasts now. But what we try and do is pick dates where we're talking about things which aren't the same day everyone else is talking about it. And that means finding a date that a thing happened that isn't perhaps the date that everyone else would be commemorating. So, for example, on the 13th of March, we did an episode about Matahari. Other people will be doing stuff about Matahari on the day that she was assassinated. 
or on the day that she became a spy, but we did the day that she made her debut on the French stage as a burlesque dancer, for example. Um, so it's just kind of looking around that stuff and thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, we've got Bigot Gate coming up, which was, you know, Gordon Brown calling Gillian Duffy a bigot on Radio 2. That's great, you know. Um, so it's just it's just remembering those dates and being like, oh, yeah, there's 10 minutes in that. Um, so, you know, it's it's like mixing pop culture with... I suppose, sort of history with a capital H, you know, the Nazis, the Romans, etc. <laughs> all the classics, all the hits. <laughs> all, all the hits, yeah, exactly. I think that's, uh, I mean, it's such a good idea for uh, for a show and, you know, the possibilities are endless with that. That's the thing. I, when I first explained the concept to some friends, they were like, oh, right, so is it a show that runs for a year and then once you've done every day in history, you're done? I'm like, no, history is everything that's ever happened up to now, including the beginning of this conversation. <laughs> There's literally limitless amount of things we can discuss. So no, it's not going to just run for a year. And yeah, we've we've tried to come up with a format that hopefully will run as long. I mean, answer me this ran to episode 400. So that was 14 years. You know, I I don't want to stop making that kind of uh, factual entertainment content. What do they call I met a BBC executive the other day who told me what my genre was called, that they refer to it internally as. And I was like, oh my God, you've nailed me. I think they call it something like cheeky factual. <laughs> 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 which is like you know stuff like you're dead to me and us so yeah i I'm, i want to keep making cheeky factuals so yes we've got a big spreadsheet that will last indefinitely hopefully please start a podcast called cheeky factual like that, 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 that that's uh that's an itunes number one hit right there yeah it's like cheeky nando yeah. isn't it it's just like you want to pop out for a cheeky factual <laughs> <laughs> give me 10 minutes i'll tell you about the terracotta army <laughs> cheeky factual with ollie man <laughs> <laughs> My other show, The Modern Man, is like the absolute opposite of of Today in History with the Retrospectors. Because like Today in History is a very, as you said, very simple, high concept thing. Like it's 10 minutes long. It ends with a laugh. You learn stuff. Like I say, there's an ad in it. It's almost transactional. It's like, give me this 10 minute content. We're like, OK, well, here you go. Um, whereas The Modern Man is a magazine show um, where there's three separate elements, one about trends, one about sex, one about um, sort of an individual who's had an amazing experience giving me a long interview. And, you know, people easily miss bits on that. Like, if you haven't downloaded the episode about the guy who defrauded a bank because you're not interested in banks, you might have missed the bit where we're talking about VR or we're talking about low cervixes or whatever the thing was. So it's like, I've been thinking myself about how we should repackage up some of that content because there's some amazing stuff we've done that just gets missed. Yeah, what I love about The Modern Man is is you can sort of jump from, you know, like quite an amusing bit uh, around tech or, or a gadget to quite a serious interview. And, and you always do quite long interviews on the show. So you get, really get to know your guest. Uh, and that could be about something quite challenging. And then you go to Alex Fox, who can, you know, totally change the energy. Uh, you know, that's quite impressive in an hour long show to sort of go through those different emotions. For me, what I, I guess I'm a kind of podcast purist, really. I and mean, we do do film today in history with the retrospectives so that it can be distributed by someone on TikTok. I don't understand how that works. But generally, I'm only really interested in audio. I'm interested in a connection with an audience that are listening to you because they've chosen you out of everything in the world at that moment to hear and put in their ears. And that's sort of what Helen and I were exploring with Answer Me This for all those years was doing an interactive show. You know, can we do a sort of a radio show, but on as a podcast that could be listened to in five years time still feel interactive? And the answer is yes, if you build up a really strong bond with your audience, which you do in podcasting, then why not use that trust? And that's what The Modern Man is. It's kind of like closetly public service broadcasting, frankly. So, you know, you're, you're trusting me because you like me as a person, as a gatekeeper to bring you content. I will bring you something fun at the beginning where we try out new vegan milks or whatever the hell it is. And then I will bring you a really, like you say, challenging story. And we've done some really difficult things. 
Um, you know, we've covered stories about rape, about abuse. We've covered stories where people have lost their jobs. We've covered stories where people have felt very compromised, been involved in violence, lost their children. You know, I mean, difficult experiences. But the kind of thing that unites them all together is they teach you something about the modern world and like how if this had happened to you, because that's what you're always thinking with those kinds of empathetic stories, isn't it? What would I do? If this had happened to you in the last 20 years, how would that be different to how it would have affected you if it had happened in the 20th century? And the answer is usually something to do with online support or indeed like online trolling uh, or something about the way that the world has changed. So there's a different conversation about, for example, you know, on the trans issue, um, you know, whatever the subject is, something has changed in the water that's different now than it would have been. That's the only connecting thread <laughs> between all the mad stories that we've covered. But basically, it's that people trust me. And I think that kind of goes into the, the movie we're going to talk about today in a way, because I'm interested in light and shade at once. I like, I particularly have always liked, and we did this and Answer Me This as well. And and Retrospectors is the same thing. We're mixing up different days in history. We are doing, you know, mass murder one day and then a funny incident at the Brit Awards the next day. I like lulling people in with light content and then slapping them in the face with something that actually means something. Uh, and... Do it, if you can do both at once, if you can, if you can, and an answer me this, we did this all the time. If you can do a funny question about what is a banana and then do a question about I've got cancer and how do I choose a wig? That's the best way, I think, to deepen that trust that people have with you and also to provide that, that cheeky factual. <laughs> it's that, it's a dopamine hit, isn't it? Like I've learned something, I've really thought about something, but also it's fun to listen to. You're, you're a very busy uh, person. Do you get much time to watch movies? Are you a film fan? I am a film fan in that until I was about probably 25, I really knew everything about at least films that were being released. I mean, I wasn't like a kind of Kim Newman style, you know, back of the video shop guy. But I was someone who would be able to tell you who wrote the score for the latest Hollywood blockbuster. I was someone who cared about, oh, he was in this and then he was in that. I don't know whether it's that I got old or that Hollywood changed. But I just stopped. I just lost interest. I think it's the superhero thing. I, I, I don't mind some of the flashy blockbuster stuff. I, I really don't. I mean, I enjoyed Avatar a lot. And the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans when I was at university, I enjoyed both of those. I, was, I went and saw all the Harry Potters. Like, I, I'm not anti-Hollywood films. But when every film feels like it's being designed for a 13-year-old boy, it's just not my jam. Like, the things that I'm interested in, I've already said, are like things where I'm not sure what I think that are challenging me, where the acting is supernaturalistic. That's my personal thing that I like. And Hollywood was making less and less of that. I know they exist, but they were making less and less. And most of the good stuff was ending up on, well, box sets, as they used to be called now, Netflix, etc. And so like everyone else, I just kind of pivoted into TV. And films haven't really won me back, partly because my wife, it is a length thing, which is interesting. So my wife of an evening, it'll get to 8.30, we've put the kids to bed, we've had dinner, we've had a gin and tonic. I've got an hour then to suggest something to watch. And then she's like, right, news at 10 bed. So, <laughs> so a film that is under 90 minutes might just squeeze through. But usually it's like, no, let's watch an episode of something because that'll be 50 minutes. So that's kind of where we've ended up, I guess. And if I watch films, it's when she's gone, gone to bed. That's when I watch films. So I guess it's that really. And I feel a bit sad about it because I feel like films are such, particularly the length thing, even if they're two hours rather than 90 minutes or three hours, the fact that someone's tried to condense a story into one thing, 
I know there's like universes now that build up around these stories, but basically one thing that you can consume and get everything you want out of it. I feel like that's the equivalent of kind of books or plays, whereas TV series feel like really the equivalent of like, you know, Dickens writing things that last forever in magazines. I actually like a thing being a whole thing that you can think about for a few days. And I, I like watching films. I just don't watch as many of them as I used to. I think it's the, that's just a challenge, isn't it? You know, sort of fitting them in. But also it's, it's the perception of the sort of time economy because so many people say, like, oh, I, I, I don't have time to watch a movie, but I watch four episodes of Game of Thrones, which is longer than most yeah. you know, commercially released films uh, there. But because that's like multiple episodes, I don't know, it's, it's sort of perceived as not as much time, even though you could totally watch the latest Avengers film in that time. But yeah, it's definitely something that comes up a lot when we talk about runtimes and, and things on the show. I do sort of find that fascinating. I find as well that I'm being more and more brought to projects because of the people involved with them. If I'm going to watch a film, it will be because... I mean, to take a, a very obvious example, if you're looking at A-list stars, like basically if Leonardo DiCaprio's in it or Tom Hanks is in it, the script's going to be good. Like even if it's a bad film, you know they've only agreed to do that because it's a really good script. So I'll watch that on that basis alone. Where I'm missing out, I suppose, is the stuff that's just under the under that level, which I'd probably really enjoy. I like a lot of the sort of mumblecore, Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig type stuff, but I haven't watched it all because life's short you know but i i like the aesthetic <laughs> i'm sure there's lots of films i'd like i haven't seen 100 percent. and with those types of films they're not as you know when it's a tv show it's, it's sort of released directly into your home you know where to watch it a lot of those films are it's not available here it's not on dvd it was in the cinemas for a week and then good luck and it's, it's those barriers into into finding them sometimes yeah like i mean after sun sounds like my sort of thing uh, but I haven't seen it because to watch it involved getting a trial subscription for some random streaming service through Amazon. And I was like, am I going to forget to cancel? By the time you've thought that stuff through, you've already pressed play on something on iPlay, haven't you? That's the thing. If you do get around to After Sun, very good. Would recommend. Sadly, over 90 minutes. Yeah, so, sure. you know, dead to me. Over 90 minutes. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but when we when we first started talking about this show, uh, Ollie, how did you approach your, your research? Did you have something in mind or was there a short list? Uh, you know, how did we end up on our film today? Well, I'm afraid it was that you sent me the letterboxed page that I, and I looked through to see which films on there I liked. I, I had before that started looking for various things and then realised that you've done episodes on them. So I would totally be your Muppet Christmas Carol guy if that hadn't already happened. I, I genuinely think that is obviously the best Muppet film and the best Christmas Carol film, but, but possibly the best Christmas film and one of the best family films. I, I could talk about that a lot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess I just looked through and, and, and looked through that list and thought, what are the films that really meant something to me? And yeah, I, I stumbled across this. Is this where I do the big reveal? Yes, do the big reveal. I'm talking about Todd Salonzi's 1994-1995 film, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I remember seeing when it came out on its cinema release in the UK, and it did get a proper like release in the UK, having been a surprise hit in the US, having gone through Sundance. And because I was that kid who subscribed to Empire Magazine at the age of 16... I, did, I went and saw this with my parents like it was, you know, true lies. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember all of us really enjoying it, which is strange because my dad was very much someone who preferred a sort of Indiana Jones type caper to an a independent American film about nothing. And he loved it as well. I think there's something in this film that speaks to almost anyone if they sit down and, and press play everyone and it's interesting so that we could watch it you you hooked me up with uh, radiance films who have put out a, a blu-ray of welcome to the dollhouse in the last few weeks 
So we had a copy to watch in, in quality. Uh, and it came with some bonus features, which I also sat and watched. And in one of the bonus features, I can't remember who said it, whether it was Heather Matarazzo, who plays Dawn in Welcome to the Dollhouse, or whether it was Todd Salons, the director. But someone said, everyone thinks they were Dawn at some point, the, the protagonist of this film. Everyone thinks they were Dawn. Everyone thinks. Everyone can relate to the thing. I mean, one of the first scenes in the film is Dawn turns up in her junior high school canteen with a tray and she's trying to find somewhere to sit and she's looking, she's scanning the room. You know what she's thinking. She's thinking, no one likes me and wherever I sit, there's problems. If I sit there, I'll get bullied. If I sit there, I'm sitting with someone who hates me. If I sit there, you know, this these girls are going to come up to me and tease me. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think everyone can relate to at some point in their life, they've been Dawn. At some point in their life, they've looked around and thought, no one likes me here or I don't relate to these people or I feel uncomfortable or where do I want to put myself that I feel comfortable? But the realisation that that's her whole world, that's her permanent reality, she's constantly in that frame of mind. It instantly puts you into a pretty problematic headspace that actually isn't what most people's experience is. Most people then go home and have some respite from being bullied. Most people have a friend <laughs> who they like and genuinely likes them. Most people have some recourse to, I don't know, literature or dance, whatever the thing is that releases them from that cycle of feeling other. But Dawn doesn't. It's about someone who is in that awkward stage of life. She's 11, I think, trying to discover who she is and realising that she isn't attractive. People think she's ugly. And I think it's important that the, world, the, the, the film doesn't shy from that word. It's not just, oh, you're not conventionally attractive. She's ugly. People think she's ugly. What does that do to you? It's 87 minutes long. And we are we are looking at the world through Dawn's eyes and how everybody seemingly hates her or doesn't love her or, you know, puts her through the ringer, uh, you know, in some of the social interactions with her friends. Uh, but it isn't you don't feel beaten down by watching the film. There are sort of, you know, like moments of levity in there as well. Like it's a really interesting world that Todd Solons has, has crafted for us. It's a comedy. I'd go as far to say it's a comedy. And it was received as a comedy very clearly in the 90s. If you look back at the reviews... People were like, excruciating black comedy, hilarious. And like, I suppose the biggest divide now, as you look at it these years later, is between the people who think it's a tragedy because it's about cycles of abuse being perpetuated on a young girl and people who think it's a comedy because it has this arch, wry, ironised, detached view of this slightly ridiculous suburban family who, you know, is full of, and town, which is full of people who fundamentally don't appreciate their own ridiculousness and that's funny viewed from the lens of educated New York filmmaker. Of course, it's both things, isn't it? It's absolutely both things. And again, that's like my sweet spot. It's both. Like you, you feel like Dawn has the most appalling life. You are taken on a journey where you imagine being bullied, being raped, being physically attacked, uh, being responsible for the abduction of your sister. And yet at the same time, there are laugh out loud moments in it. Sometimes whilst those things are happening. Yeah. <laughs> It's that tone. I, I, I mean, this is Todd Solon's second feature film. I've not seen his first one, but I don't think he likes it very much or cares for it. It sort of made him. He doesn't want you to. It made him uh, made him leave the film industry, and he became uh, like a, a an English language teacher um, for a few years, but then got drawn back in um, with Welcome to the Dollhouse. Which, how fascinating is that, by the way? Because I was yeah, because I was watching this thinking, how did they raise the finance for this? Even though it's obviously cheap. It's mostly filmed in a house and a school. Like you can see how you can film it in one summer on location in one place. It's got child actors in it. Like, you know, things happen. They go to New York. How did they fund this when it's so bleak and he was so unproven? 
And then I read the, again, the liner notes that came in the Blu-ray. Brilliant. I mean, I haven't, I haven't had a new DVD or Blu-ray for like 20 years. It's very exciting. <laughs> I read the liner notes. It's got a little booklet in it. Again, well done, Radiance Films. Which said that it happened because a mate of his was like, I can get access to film funding. Would you like to make a film? I mean, it just seems extraordinary that it could ever happen to anybody. I might say yes if someone said, I've got 300 grand, would you like to make a film? Do you know what I mean? Like, even if I hadn't got a script ready. I mean, that's the bit that's hard, isn't it? Trying to convince people to make the bloody thing. So he just sort of seemed to land on his feet and have people that were prepared to support his worldview, which isn't a conventional Hollywood worldview by a long chalk. It's that classic sort of 90s film festival breakout. I think a lot of films that we love today, you know, did premiere at Sundance, the Tarantino films, the Robert Rodriguez films, Todd Salon's films. And and they, they that was back when I think in the days where festivals would really make or break your career. And this totally made Todd Salon's career. Like he made, I mean, he carried on the story of Dawn in a few films, but he this brand of his dark comedy was what became his career for the next 20 or so years afterwards. And kind of what you want still. Like, the yeah, the DNA of this is what you want when you do go and pay money to see a Todd Salon's film. And I have done that with all of his films, I think, apart from, I don't think I have seen Life After Wartime or Life During Wartime or whatever it's called. I've seen all of the others. And honestly, I think Happiness is his masterpiece, the film that came after this. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman, I would watch doing anything. I was I was genuinely devastated when Philip Seymour Hoffman died. I, I really, I was looking forward to another 30 years of performances from him. I mean, he was just my favourite in anything. You know, Boogie Nights, The Hunger Games, any old shit. I just loved Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> um, but Happiness is the masterpiece, I think. Unfortunately, over 90 minutes. But actually, everything after Happiness, honestly... It's it's like, it's three stars, isn't it? So for me, only, oh, I mean, I'm accepting the uh, soundtrack from Storytelling by Bell and Sebastian, which is one of my favourite albums. I mean, that's an amazing thing. The fact that the Storytelling generated that soundtrack is incredible. But leaving that aside, I think Only Happiness is a five-star masterpiece. I think this is a kind of four-star, everyone should watch it, you'll get something out of it. It's interesting, it stands up. But it's not a masterpiece. But it's like the tone of this has never been bettered in his films. It's what he's still aspiring to give us, I think. And it's what you want in the audience. You know, you want to feel these things again. I, I hear that. Yeah, I think this is this is sort of the blueprint for for his career. It's got a bit of bit of everything. And it's, uh, I think it sells you on the vision of Todd Solons, you know, like, this is what he can do. And let's give him money to make things like this. And yeah, he totally, he's, he's, he's sort of experimented with form and he loves to do anthology movies and, uh, you know, experimental sort of, you know, flourishes in his later films. But this one, I think this one, everything just comes together just right. Um, and it's a little bit scrappy, but I think that's part of the joy. Like, I sort of love that it's a bit rough around the edges and, you know, it's shot on location and, uh, you know, it's it's got lots of, you know, first time actors in and, and all that sort of stuff. It just sort of adds to the to the stew. Um, watching this again on this, the, the nice sort of Blu-ray, it really reminded me about, you know, little things like the colours are so well thought out. He's got this amazing sort of colour palette uh, there, which is, is kind of timeless. Like, it looks like it's shot in the 90s, sure. But it also, I think, through a 2020-something lens, it looks really cool and vibrant. And actually, uh, you see people making films like this now. And actually, it's not clear it's the 90s. I, I, that wonderful kind of bad taste palette of soft furnishings and florals that the Wiener family live in in this movie, you're watching it for the first half an hour thinking, are we in the 70s? Are we in the 80s? Like, they've got an old TV. They're watching Jeopardy or whatever it is during the day. They're slouched on the sofa. You you so know that milieu from a million 70s and 80s high school films. It's not clear what decade we're in until there's a moment when the brother, Dawn's older brother, gets uh, a letter 
from a girl that he's been trying to get together with at camp who says, for my birthday, I'm getting an email address. And suddenly you think, oh, okay, no, it is 1994. That is the year we're in. It's just that New Jersey hasn't caught up. <laughs> um, and that's just, I mean, yeah, those colours, those 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 furnishings are just, in them, I mean, their camp is what they are, aren't they? They're just like, they're things that Joe Lysett would wear on stage is what they are. Like those jumpers that Dawn wears with like the mad prints on, like you know, animals and sunshine emojis and just the contrast between the happy colours that she's wearing and the inner torment that she's feeling and the ugliness that she's projecting and the guilt that you feel for thinking that when it's an 11-year-old girl is just perfectly encapsulated by those, yeah, dissonant bright colours. I love it. Hard and large, you're the greatest You're the greatest couple the world's ever seen We love you both, we wish you the best Happy anniversary, great joy and happiness Happy anniversary, happy anniversary to you Happy anniversary, happy anniversary to you It's also got the, um, that amazing soundtrack in this film, the sort of the, the garage band uh, beats that, that sort of punctuate throughout the movie. Uh, you'll hear some some drums and, and, and things. I, I, I really, it helps. I mean, the film is brief. It's 87 minutes long anyway, but it sort of really helps break up the sections and move you along. Uh, and I really love that flourish. Like, I, I think it's quite infectious when when the music hits. The, the original song in it, Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is what it's named after, is not on Spotify, weirdly. I don't know if it was ever commercially released as a soundtrack. Because uh, I thought before we start recording, I'll play this in the background to get me in, in the mood. But I think you can only hear that song in the film. But it's a good song, isn't it? It's a good 90s grungy garage band song. I mean, a bit like with Bell and Sebastian in storytelling. I think Salon's chose well musically here. Oh, absolutely. I didn't realise that about the song. That's uh, that's uh, yet another reason to watch the movie, listeners. Uh, and then you can hear the song in its, <laughs> in its fullest. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing that you got to see this film in, in the cinema because like a lot of these films... You know, they 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 maybe have a little brief outing in the cinema. Then then you do have to track down the DVD or mm. or, or similar. Why did Welcome to the Dollhouse stick with you? Uh, you know, from watching it in the mid nineties to, to sort of talking about it now. I mean, I suppose it's partly the the pushing the envelope on that thing that I've been describing of that vague area of what am I supposed to feel? I think a lot about the Mel Brooks quote: "Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die," <laughs> because. I just find it fascinating the cruelty that we will withstand for laughs when it's happening to somebody else versus the feeling of horror we would feel personally if any of these things that we're laughing at happened to us. And in this movie, it gets pushed into not rape, but threatened rape and is played for laughs and is uncomfortable and is supposed to be uncomfortable. And again, I, I think... Um, Nowadays, it's very hard to imagine that scene being in there just because um, I think people would feel it was perhaps irresponsible or triggering or it, pushing it too far to have a 13-year-old boy played by Brandon Sexton say, I'm going to rape you at 3pm today and play it for laughs. And yet, that is the sort of thing that gets said at junior high school. Like, you know, I remember people being horribly bullied. I'm sure things like that were said. As in this film, the act isn't followed through on, but they're said. So why not let's talk about them? Why pretend that doesn't happen? Why why not have a conversation about how our society is that that happens at all? That that might happen? 
I read a comment on YouTube actually when I when I did find um, the full version of the film up there uh, to see what people thought about it, and one of the comments in there said something like, "I always feel like I need a shower after watching one of his films," and it is that feeling of it makes you uncomfortable, but you're uncomfortable not because he's showing you something you're not used to seeing. I mean, it's partly that, but really you're uncomfortable because he's showing you what exists. You know it exists. And it's not talked about usually in films. And so you're confronting something difficult. And I think the fact that he can do that within the context of a comedy is just an extraordinary kind of feat, really. So I suppose it's that. That's the thing that stuck with me. I suppose the other thing as well, that I, you know, and again, this is probably quite specific to me, or at least specific to uh, Northwest London Jewish families, Probably the reason my dad liked it is because it's about a Jewish family. I don't even know that that's um, something that non-Jewish people would identify or certainly wouldn't notice probably for like an hour of the running time. There is a scene where at the anniversary party of Dawn's parents, the band play a bastardized version of um, Shalom Alechem as a happy anniversary with a klezmer clarinet. I think that's fairly explicitly Jewish, but even then, you know, it's not like they're lighting Hanukkah candles or something. So I feel like maybe at that point that would signal to a non-Jewish audience, oh, they're Jewish. But the main thing you're thinking is they're a New Jersey suburban family. But if you're a Jewish family watching it, you're thinking this is a suburban Jewish family being portrayed. And that's obvious from scene one. It's obvious from the sort of Semitic looks that the uh, actors have in the very first shot of the film in the awkward family photo that's on the wall, the Paisley colours, the four smiles, that sort of stormy grey background that family photographers had in the 90s. You know, I had a picture like that for my bar mitzvah. I know exactly what that is. I know the world we're in. And, you know, they're called Wiener. So like I say, to a Jewish family watching it, that's obvious. Again, it seems weird to say now because there's so many uh, TV shows by Jewish comedians and performers in which there are characters that are openly Jewish, talk about being Jewish, come from a Jewish background, made in America. There's loads of them. But then in the 90s, I mean, there was Seinfeld, which obviously had a Jewish sense of humour. But otherwise, really, in, in films, you were looking at basically Woody Allen and Mel Brooks. And so to, to have a Jewish family in it, in a suburban environment, was something that probably stuck with me. Because still, it's the case, I'm not aware of someone having made a successful British film set in Jewish suburbia in England. I don't think my background has ever been represented in a film. And like I say, my dad wouldn't normally like this kind of film, but I suppose I suppose that's one of the things that appealed to him. Film was was doing things that TV shows couldn't do probably in the nineties. You know, it was we had four channels here, and and if it was a comedy, it would event you know inevitably be a a, a studio set sitcom. Uh, you know, which had to be probably quite broad. Uh, you know, uh, appeal quite broadly. I think later on, you know, TV at the moment is quite exciting and cutting edge, and you could totally see this being a really you know, acclaimed HBO sort of mm. miniseries mm. or something now. But I think yeah. independent film was where this sort of story had to be in the 90s. And it it sort of beautifully encapsulates the the production, you know, sort of side of things as well. You know, that, that really exciting time where all these great filmmakers were coming through. The original title for the film, apparently, was The Middle Child. And I thought that's interesting because that's more relatable. That's more universal, isn't it? But it's also somehow more forgettable and less indie. You look at the way this film was marketed, you know, the, the bright colours of the poster and the, the the graphics of Welcome to the Dollhouse looking like a ransom note sort of hinting at the dark subplot that happens later in the film. And the provocative, sort of sexually provocative picture of an 11-year-old who looks like laughable and, and in, in, the, in the clothes she's wearing and yet looking straight at you and like she's in control. 
it was quite arresting. And I think it, it, it took on those indie sensibilities almost in the marketing. But it could have, it could have been even more relatable, I think, than, than it feels when you watch it. I mean, as I said, I think most people, when they actually sat down and watch it, if they got past that initial obstacle of, oh, am I watching an art movie, would find nothing difficult here to, to actually relate to. You know, you're, you're straight in there, aren't you? You know where you are. I shot a spitball. You shot a what? She shot a spitball. A teacher was almost blinded. I was fighting back. Who ever told you to fight back? Dawn, are you having social problems? No. Yes, she's got no friends. I've got friends. Who? Ralphie. Case closed. She's a loner. You, you are invited to think in the perspective of a 90s preteen, oh, we're going to bash them because they're different. And that is the obvious thing to do. I think <laughs> it's enlightening to be made to think about that stuff and what perpetuates those cycles of bullying and abuse. I mean, there's that wonderful moment where Dawn considers bashing her sister on the head with a hammer while she sleeps. There's a moment where you do that. You don't just think, oh, no, don't do that to your attractive, lovely, cute sister. You are thinking you're not thinking do it, but you are thinking you're right. If you were to bash her on, her, on the head, life would be fairer because she'd be physically disfigured and in pain like you. And that would be fairer for everyone, wouldn't it? Life's unfair. Life is a constant cycle where things aren't fair. And you agree with her in that moment for a second before she corrects herself and so do you. She's such a good character, I think, Dean, uh, sort of uh, the ultimate Lisa Simpson. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in that sort of setting. And, and so well played as well by uh, by Heather Matrazzo. Like, it's her first role she went on to do do other work as an actor but i just think like getting this incredible performance from an 11 year old <laughs> um who i don't think had any training I, I think it was sort of like a street casting type thing in a local shopping mall um where they they, they found her it's it's a real sort of like meeting of minds with todd solander's you know work and directing and and just what she brings to it as a performer well my understanding was they did look in shopping malls and stuff for uh, performers but realized that the people that could really bring out the sort of inner dawn were too shy to put themselves forward for an audition in the first place. So you're right, they did do some scouting and they did some scouting as well for the sort of thuggish um, kind of bully types, but they were too cool to consider being in a film and thought the whole thing was dumb. So in the end, apparently, again, I'm getting this purely from the extras included on this excellent Blu-ray, uh, <laughs> uh, they went through conventional casting routes and agents and stuff. So in fact, Heather Matarazzo had been in an off-Broadway production playing um, Helen Keller. Oh, wow. And someone had seen her in that and said, you'd be perfect for auditioning for this. But yeah, her first film, apart from, you know, a few ads, she'd never been on camera before and was 11 years old. And Salons talks about how he had a fear that, you know, her mum wasn't a stage school mum. Her mum was just a mum who was like, yeah, you can go to New Jersey for the summer. That'll be a good thing for you to grow and do. But could have at any moment thought, you know what, she's in an environment that isn't safe. She's working late. I mean, he admits that they illegally kept their child stars there late at night so they could film all the shots. She's been put into these sexualized positions where she has to think about what it would be like to be sexually harassed. I'm going to pull her out of this. She's going to come home. And that was a fear that was hanging over them the whole way, apart from the fact that Matarazzo just loved it so much, like and was a natural and appeared to really enjoy being on set. And then, as you say, did spark a career. Which, she's in Scream, apparently. She's in all three or four of the original Scream movies. But I, I must say, I've seen all of them. I don't remember her 
Um, I don't know. Maybe you just remember Courtney Cox and the mask. I don't know. Yeah, she's in. She's definitely in Scream Three, and I think she came back for the reboot. And and yeah, I remember her in Scream Three, but I, I could I didn't realize she was in the new ones, which I have watched recently. So I don't know if it's a very minor <laughs> role or, or you know one, one of those sort of things. But also extraordinary in an eleven-year-old that she can play ugly in this way. You know, I, because actually she's. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm using that word because it's the word that's used in the film. I don't use it in my real life, but she convincingly plays a girl that everyone would think is ugly in the 90s. And yet you look at her as a grown-up now and, okay, she's got a kind of character actor's face, I suppose. She's never going to be your romantic lead. But, you know, she, she is she, if, if made up and wearing a ball gown at the Oscars. She would look just like every other actress on the carpet. And, you know, it makes me think about actors as well, like uh, Rowan Atkinson and what they can do with their face, you know, to make themselves seem very unattractive and, and weird. And then you see them in real life and they, they just look like normal people. That's a normal face. <laughs> um, and so I think even as an 11-year-old, she has some skill for like knowing how to play the acre. I mean, she's, she's the outcast. She's a really talented actor and she gets into that space and physically changes into Dawn. Absolutely. I think you're right. You, you can see it in her, the expression in her face in every shot. There's like you can tell she is thinking about how everybody else is looking at her and she's sort of carrying that and wearing it like a mask. Uh, through and I think it's sort of amplified by those big glasses that she's wearing as well that like you really look at her eyes because of those those big chunky glasses with clear frames and there's that wonderful moment where she's watching her brother's garage band which is just hilarious in itself because as I say you know <laughs> klezma style clarinet and bass guitar and drums is funny anyway you know just basically these uptight maths nerds looking to get laid and then she's watching them but then into her world steps this kind of libido opening uh, rock star Steve who comes in to do lead vocals. And there's that shot of her sitting on the car bonnet dancing, dancing just with her upper half. She's got her legs crossed and then she's sort of moving her arms. Like, it's just, you know exactly what's in her head. She's had this sort of sexual awakening. She's incredibly physically moved by this Adonis singing in her garage. But at the same time, she's, as you say, incredibly awkward, knows everyone's watching her, is trying to dance in a way that looks cool or what she understands as cool. And there's a layer where genuinely she's getting into the music and it's doing something to her. It's a lot for an 11-year-old to play, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. And that's what I found, you know, what makes the film so compelling, I think, rewatching it today. You're just sort of drawn in and you're on her side, even though she's up against some really extreme odds. I think it's such an amazing you know, debut performance. Um, really, really blew me away. And if you know, she's so good at acting with with the she, she's in every scene. I think you know, she's there's not a shot in this film without her. And she has to interact with so many different people. You know, lots of actors her own age, the, the people playing the grown ups in her life, the parents, younger actors around her. Uh, I just think she's a natural. And the other child actor as well, it's a notable child actor in it, Brandon Sexton, who's playing a character called Brandon or Brandon. He's brilliant as well. I mean, he was older. I mean, I think he was fourteen or something. But again, just a really natural performance. You totally believe him and you don't accept him as a caricature, even though really he kind of is. Like, you know, he has a brother with learning difficulties and he lives in a sort of trailer park type dilapidated house and he's, his dad wears a wife beater and he, you know, he's he's he physically signposted to you as kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Maybe there's a heart of gold if you look hard enough. Like, that's the role. And yet he plays it totally like a real person <laughs> you really do believe that brandon exists and you kind of like to give him a hug he's really good as well actually i was um quite warmed by, by that performance 
We talked about some of Todd Sullivan's other films. I don't know if you saw Wiener Dog, his most recent film. No, I didn't. And I, I didn't, I mean, it, I only just clocked, you know, literally yesterday that, oh, that's a continuation of this, isn't it? It's the same character. Well, it's a funny one. So Brandon is in it, played by Kieran Culkin. And 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 uh, yeah, Dawn is in this, played by Greta Gerwig. And I just don't think they quite work with those, you know, more sort of established Hollywood you know, even though they're both indie actors and they're both wonderful, I don't think they work for Brandon and, and Dawn in the same way as Brandon and the cast uh, here. Uh, it's an interesting, I think, what if uh, Wiener Dog, but not an essential uh, Solons, a slight Solons. I will check it. I mean, I'm sure one day I will get round to it. But like I say, you know, it's just it's a lot of episodes of Succession, aren't there? To think about Kieran Culkin there. We are going to bring Welcome to the Dollhouse to our Under 90 Minute Film Festival. And, and part of that, what time are you going to play it? I'm curious. <laughs> uh, I feel like Welcome to Dollhouse is is probably an evening film. Um, I think, but not too late. You know, not as late as you might want to put a horror on. Maybe like a like an eight pm. I think that's right. I think you could get away with another film after it. So yeah, like something more openly dark. Um, with less of a comic sensibility, like a horror movie or something. This is the segue. So we do Muppet Christmas Carol, then we'll do Welcome to the Dollhouse, (laughs) and then we'll skip into Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then Halloween. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. No, I think that would... I mean, there's a path there, isn't there? Definitely. That's a great triple bill, you know, and also won't take up much of your time. Uh, very, very, uh, very economic uh, runtime there. But um, but if and good songs in all of them. That's true. That's true. Yeah, maybe that's what's playing in the lobby as you arrive. Just the soundtracks to these movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would that would work. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know, this is a it's a you know, physical festival in a cinema. Is there a particular venue that you personally would like to show this uh, film at? I think the cinemas that speak to you the most aren't the best ones. They're the ones where you have the happiest memories, aren't they? So there's two cinemas that immediately jump to mind as places where I've had happy memories, both of which are bad cinemas. <laughs> One would be the cinema in Harrow, either of the cinemas in Harrow, which were MGM branded when I was a kid. Uh, one of which is now an Indian cinema showing Bollywood films and the other which is now a Gold's Gym. I, I went to see uh, The Mask there with my grandpa when that had just come out and others of the Jim Carrey oeuvre. Um, oh, no, I've just thought of a good one, though. So, yes, the other one that I was thinking that isn't a good cinema but is full of happy memories is the Ultimate Picture Palace in Oxford, which, when I was a student there, was still doing tickets for a pound uh, and showing these sorts of films a few years after they came out. A soft spot for that place. Uh, but, no, I just thought of a good a good cinema, actually, where I would like to see it, is the Broadway Cinema in Letchworth. It's a spectacular place. Um, I mean... Letchworth is an acquired taste architecturally, I suppose. Um, you know, they filmed uh, one of the Cornetto trilogy there. I, oh, I forget wow. which. But it's it's got that look of like American small town, but in Britain somehow, because it was all built in the 1920s. Um, and it's where I went to school. Um, and so, again, soft spot nostalgia for going to the Broadway when it was still one big screen. I went to see Jurassic Park there. And again, it cost a pound in 1994. And I sat in the circle and watched Jurassic Park with like 800 other people. But again, smelt a bit of wee and was old and needed restoration. And then what happened at the end of the 90s, they did restore it. And it was restored by the council, the Heritage Foundation in Letchworth Garden City. And they did a beautiful job. It's not what it used to be in terms of size and scale, but it's probably the biggest regional cinema you'll go to that isn't an IMAX screen. It's probably got like 300 seats or something. And it's, it's, you're a long way away from the screen and it's big. It's comfortable. It's affordable. It's got that kind of community feel because there's frankly not much else going on in Letchworth. And uh, yeah, it's really nicely like programmed. And if someone goes to a special event at the Broadway cinema, I feel like that they're, they're going to enjoy it. You know, they've made the journey to go. It's easy to park outside just by the pretzel. So 
I would. <laughs> I'd go there. Okay, well we can do that. We can we can, we can hire the lecturer for Broadway, and, and we can get a, a nice you know restored version of Welcome to the Dollhouse to play. Uh, I think that would be good. Thank you. It was nice to hear about the Ultimate Picture Palace as well. You are not the first guest to mention that. I think there's probably a little running uh, you know, through line of the podcast of guests who've mentioned the Ultimate Picture Palace. So shout out to them. But uh, you know, going to the cinema, it, the movie is the most important thing, of course. But you know, we all like a drink and a snack. Have you got a go-to, you know, uh, set of concessions uh, that you'd like to serve to the audience for Welcome to the Dollhouse? You're making me think back because I haven't been to the cinema. I think I haven't been to the cinema since the pandemic. Um, but in any case, was only going to the cinema sparingly because um, I had children in 2016, and that does things to your cinema going schedule. <laughs> I think I've been to the cinema like three times in the last 10 years. Um, but yes, um, minstrels, galaxy minstrels, packet of the large, the large packet that hangs on the thing of galaxy minstrels that's just too many minstrels and too much money, and I eat all of them uh, with a Pepsi Max large, and then something salty that I don't like that that my wife has like you know nachos with that horrible cheese like i have a couple of those and think Ugh, back to the minstrels oh it feels like a very 90s cinema going menu but we can make all of this happen we'll bring it to the broadway uh and if, if we could book a guest uh maybe to come and introduce the film or, or do a q a afterwards is there anyone you'd like to hear uh, from who's been who was involved in welcome to the dollhouse yeah i think i would actually invite heather matarazzo i think she's she's really interesting like, watching her on this blu-ray and seeing how it shaped her experiences and from what i infer i mean i haven't done any research into this so i could be wrong but from what i infer as a gay woman as well it was a kind of awakening for her in that sense, uh, being around LGBTQ people on set. Um, and then how it affected her career. Like it gave her an incredible launch pad um, where her face was on Sunset Boulevard and everyone in Hollywood knew where she, who she was and she could be an actor. But also, are you going to cast that weird girl from Welcome to the Dollhouse? That must have been hanging over her for like 10 years. And then she didn't get cast in Wiener Talk, as you say, as the same character. All of that's very interesting. And frankly, she's more charismatic uh, which is fine because that's her job than Salons is. I've actually been to a Q&A with Todd Salons because I like him. I went to watch that. Uh, uh, it was Palindromes and uh, it was a Q&A with Andrew Collins. And I just remember thinking that the person I was jealous of was Andrew Collins because whilst we were watching Palindromes, which is like, okay, he was out in the bar chatting to Todd Salons personally for an hour and a half. <laughs> and then Salons came in and was his usual mix of like Arch and Rye. But, you know, intelligent, definitely interesting, but, um, you know, talks in the same way that he makes movies, really. You're not really sure if he's joking or not. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd go with I'd go with the star. I'd have I'd have Heather. Maybe I'd have Heather Matarazzo and Brendan Sexton and, and reunite them. Oh, that'd be amazing. It's kind of a love story, isn't it? At the, at the core of this. That would be quite interesting. I think that'd be great. Yeah, they could both reflect on their, you know, the, 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 their work as child, you know, child stars, and uh, and yeah, that'd be that'd be great. A great trip down memory lane. And also, what a treat to bring Heather Matarazzo to Letchworth. To Letchworth, absolutely. And 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 Brendan Sexton. I mean, I think anyone with a numeral after their name is too American to have ever been to Letchworth Garden City. But I feel like he'd enjoy that. His full name's Brendan Sexton the Third. Okay, well we can do that. We'll, we'll we'll get the plane tickets. We'll make it all happen. We'll put them in the nearest premiere into the Broadway, and uh, away we go. No need. Letchworth Hall Hotel, perfectly decent establishment. Okay, there we go. And that's our that's our business partner for this. Good screening. roast on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let's do it. Let's do the whole thing. They can have an English roast and and all that sort of stuff. Um, the sights and sounds and smells of, of Letchworth. Uh, okay, well this screening sounds amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll make it happen and say we'll schedule it just after Muppet Christmas Carol. That's the that's our promise yes, to you. Perfect. So, uh, you know, as, as a treat, you can go and watch that uh, before we do the, the, double the work for Welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us uh, today, Ollie. It's been really nice to, to revisit this film. I haven't seen
seen it for such a long time, and um, this is sort of the best homework to rewatch. Welcome to the Dollhouse. <laughs> a pleasure, I, and it is a pleasure, isn't it? Even though it's so offbeat and disturbing, it's also pleasurable to watch. I wouldn't want to watch it again for another five years, but it was pleasurable. It's just like once once it's on, I'm in. You know, I'm not going to move anywhere. It just sort of compels you to, to to stick through it. And even though it's yeah, you know, sort of a bit awkward and 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 uh, at times it's, I think it's really compelling. You know, when it when it gets to the end and it does sort of end quite abruptly, I find. I'm like, oh, already? Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, that's the sign of a good film. But but say thank you so much for talking to us and, and suggesting uh, this film uh, on the podcast. Uh, where can people stay up to date with what uh, what you're working on next, Ollie? Well, probably the easiest thing is just to follow me on Twitter. So I'm at Ollie Mann, O-L-L-Y-M-A-N-N. Um, but those two shows that we talked about earlier, if you just search for them wherever you get your podcasts. So Today in History with the Retrospectors and The Modern Man, M-A-N-N, pun on my name. Both of those, if you've enjoyed listening to me today, will continue to be a good time for your ears. I think this was definitely a dose of cheeky factual. So thank you. It was. Thank you very much, uh, Ollie. And and say, do listen to Ollie's work. Um, He's someone who I've been listening to ever since I knew what a podcast was. uh, And uh, I can highly recommend uh, checking out all those shows. Well, thanks, Ollie. We'll see you at the Broadway in Letchworth. Thank you, Sam. Looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.